Take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Well, I love brunch Sunday, but this might be my new favorite now. Taco Sunday or Mexican Sunday because, man, was that good. And I'm expecting, fully expecting half of you to be asleep before I'm done after all that good food. At least some of you. I can name you by name. So try, try your very best, okay, to not let it overtake you. And try your very best uh, to stay with it. And I'll finish quick, okay? Philippians chapter 4, we continue in our study on finding calm in a chaotic world. And we have worked our way to verse 7. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's not a mystery to you and maybe some of you live this way, but there's a lot of people who live from day to day with worry and fear. Fear is what drives their life. Worry or anxiety dominates their life, and maybe they worry about whatever, health concerns, money concerns, job concerns. Maybe they worry about what other people think too much, but the point is, is that people live from day to day with worry and with fear and fret. And worry and fear and fret and anxiety and stress and torment and instability, those are not the places that God wants His people to be living in. That's not the will of God for our life. Jesus said in John 14, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. And he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You get an idea of, of the will of God for God's people. And our verse says, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ. God wants us to live in a place or in a state of peace. Peace that He provides. Peace, now what is that? It's not the power of positive thinking, or as words are used these days, manifesting, you know, into your life. Have you ever seen those? The word, that, that's a word that's being thrown out a lot and used a lot. Uh, manifesting, you know, positive things into your life. Peace is not something that you actually talk yourself into. You know, you have arguments with yourself not to worry and fear over this thing, and, and you try to talk yourself into a state of calm or a state of peace. Peace is, peace is not something that you talk yourself into. Peace is also not a feeling that you conjure up. And if I can just get to this place of feeling at peace, then I know what it is. No, according to Jesus... His peace, His peace, it comes from Him, it comes from God. His peace is actually connected to the Holy Spirit of God. Remember in Galatians 5, 22, the fruit 
of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. It's connected to Him, and it brings about, according to our text, and even according to Jesus' words in John 14, it brings about an untroubled heart. His peace is something that guards and protects the heart and the mind. His peace is a fruit from of His Spirit. Now, if we want a working definition of what peace is, we could say that it's quietness. We could say that it's rest. We could really say that it's freedom from disturbance or agitation. And that could be physically, that could be emotionally, that could also be spiritually. A freedom from agitation, a freedom from disturbance, a good working definition would simply be inner calm, even in the midst of outer storm. And I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. But an inner calm, a quietness, a freedom from disturbance, even in the midst of outer storm. When, when mariners describe a tempest or a storm that no sailor can escape if he's caught in the middle of it, they often will call it the perfect storm. Not perfect in the sense of ideal, because it's very much not ideal. Not perfect in the sense of ideal, but perfect in the sense of a bunch of combining factors coming together at one point to bring about this storm that is impossible to live through. All the elements, like hurricane force winds, a cold front that moves in, rain that pours down, waves that are created that are insurmountable, and it, all of those factors coming together in one place to bring about insurmountable disaster. They call that a perfect storm. The winds alone for a mariner might be a challenge, but it might be a challenge that could be overcome. But winds and waves and cold and rain, all of it together, the perfect recipe for disaster. And you, you, don't, you don't need to be a mariner to experience the perfect storm in your life. All you need is something like a layoff and a Democrat-controlled recession that happens. All you need is losing your job and losing your insurance and then being diagnosed with a terrible disease and no way to pay for it. All you need is compounding problems of life all together at the same time and you've got yourself a perfect storm. Now we can handle one challenge. We all have challenges, right? Pray for Seth. He just broke his finger, smashed it to smithereens, lost, almost lost half of it. We thought he was going to be half a person. A challenge, to be sure. He doesn't even get days off from work after that. Like, what's up with that? 
challenge. We've all got challenges. Pray for Cassandra Ryan. She's got some health issues that need to be figured out. Challenges. We've got them. One challenge we could maybe handle, but two, three, four, five compounding problems in life all together, one wave after another, gale force winds followed by thunderstorms, things that happen in life that sometimes make you wonder, am I going to survive? It's sort of what James describes in James chapter 1. Just keep your place here and look over to James chapter 1. James 1 and verse 2. James says to these saints of God, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now we look at words, and I've explained these to you before, maybe you'll remember, It's an odd thing for James to say to be happy or be joyful or to count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. You need to understand some words. The phrase fall into doesn't mean like you're walking along and there's a hole in the ground and you all of a sudden accidentally fall into the hole. That's not what it means. What it means is to be surrounded by. So he says, count it all joy when you're surrounded by, meaning on every side, in front of you, on the side of you, behind you, to the side of you, encircling you, you're surrounded by divers or different kinds of temptations. The word temptation there means adverse experience. Okay, so you follow the meaning, the wording. Count it all joy when you're completely surrounded by, on all sides, adverse experience in your life. Be happy about it. Odd thing to say. But he says you can be happy about it. Why? Because you know that what is happening is the trying of your faith, and the trying of your faith is working patience. So let patience have her perfect work. God wants to do something through this. That's why you can be joyful. You have the right perspective about it. But James is saying this happens in life. You're completely surrounded by adverse experience. Normally, when we're surrounded by adverse experience, what is our reaction and our tendency? To fret, to worry, to be full of anxiety about how is this going to work and how is that going to work and what if this and what if that. And we can get to the point sometimes where we feel like, am I even going to survive? Well, Paul's answer to that question of, will I survive, is profound and it's concise. In our text, Paul says, The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Now, in context of what we've been talking about, as we do our part in rejoicing in the Lord, 
Rejoice in the goodness of God. Celebrate the goodness of God. That He's God. That He's sovereign. That He's in control. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's my Father. He loves me. As we do our part in rejoicing in the Lord, and then as we do our part in pursuing that gentle spirit where He says in verse 5, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. He's talking about composure. And why can we have composure? Because we know the Lord is right there. As we're doing our part in pursuing that gentle spirit. And then we get down to verse 6. Be careful. Don't be full of anxiety about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. So we're praying about everything. We're clinging to gratitude full of thanksgiving. We're doing our part. And when we do, God is going to do His part. Because He's talking about these things. He gets to verse 7, then He says, you're doing this, and we're doing this, and that's what's coming. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keeps your heart and your mind. He bestows upon us His peace. Note this. It's not peace from God, but the peace of God. Our Father gives the very peace of Himself. One man said this, Peace and rest is not some holy feeling that comes upon us in church. It is a state of calm rising from a heart deeply and firmly established in God Himself. That's what peace is. Like in situations that we should be worried about, but we aren't. Or in situations where we ought to be really, really upset, but we're strangely comforted. You ever experience those kinds of things, those times when it could be deep and overwhelming sorrow? You can feel sorrow, but at the same time, there's a comfort there that you just can't really explain that comes from the grace of God. Or surrounded by enormous, immense problems, so big that there's no chance you're surviving on your own, but there's just something about it that makes me calm, that I know. You understand what I'm talking about? A peace that passes understanding. Not some holy feeling that comes over you in church, but a state of calm that comes from a heart that is deeply and firmly established in God, my Savior. Passeth all understanding. What does that mean? The peace of God that passeth all understanding. So we know what peace is. It's that calm, that quietness, even in the midst of outer storm. It comes from God. It's Himself. It's of God, not from Him. It's of Him. But it's also a peace that passes understanding. The peace of God is something that transcends logic. It transcends all logic and scheming and efforts to explain it. And really what it means, it means a peace that passes understanding. It means something that is higher 
or superior to our intellect or even understanding. Aren't you glad that you have a God who's greater than your intellect and understanding? The kind of peace that that is being talked about here is not a human achievement. Understand this. It is not a human achievement. It's a gift from God. In John 14, 27, where Jesus said, Peace, I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Because of it, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The peace of God, or God's peace, is something that can and ought to characterize the lives of God's people. So we know what peace is. It's quietness, it's rest, it's freedom from disturbance, even in the middle of outer storm. We know who it's from. It's from God. Where is it located? According to our verse, where is God's peace located? What was that, Daniel? In the heart. And where else? In the mind. You see that there? The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds. The peace of God is located in the heart and in the mind. In other words, not peace from external difficulty or trial, but rest and calm in spite of difficulty and trial. What do we want? We want the trial to go away. And if the trial goes away, then I have a sense of peace. Okay, I can breathe. It's calm again. I don't have any major problems going on. That's not what he's talking about. It's a, a peace that keeps your heart and your mind. It's located in the heart and the mind, not freedom or peace from external difficulty, but rest and calm in spite of it. Look at Job chapter 23. Job chapter 23. And look in verse 10. Job says, But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now if we just stop and take that verse, and we don't consider it in the context in which it's written, we might miss something. What is happening in Job's life? What is happening is trial beyond measure in Job's life. I mean, the kind that literally, are you going to survive? That kind of trial losing everything he has, losing all of his children, his own wife turning her back on him, telling him just to curse God and die, his friends saying, Job, you're, this is happening to you because you've got sin in your life. Job, you need to confess your sin, and you're going to find peace. Losing his own health, everything, his whole world turned upside down. And in the middle of it, Job still says, the Lord knows the way that I take. The Lord knows what's going on. And when he has tried me, I know where this is coming from. I'm going to come forth on the other side better. I'm going to come forth as gold. 
I would say that that's a picture of some calm in spite of the external trouble. Look in Esther chapter 10. Esther chapter 10 and verse 3. Consider Mordecai. Go back to verse 1. My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. Is it good unto thee that thou shouldest oppress, that thou shouldest despise the work of thine hands and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? Hast thou eyes of flesh or seest thou as a man? I'm in the wrong, wrong chapter. I'm so sorry. Like, it fits, actually. It really does fit, but I'm totally in the wrong book. I'm not even going to tell you where I was. Second, second Lamentations. <laughs> I have no idea how I got there, because that doesn't exist. Second Lamentations. Look what it says in verse... Three, for Mordecai the Jew was next to the king Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. What was going on in this situation? Well, they were trying to eradicate an entire ethnic group, an entire people group. To kill the Jews. Haman had a nasty plot. Esther feared for her life at some point, and this word spread, and in the end, the Lord spared them. But Mordecai was one who was seeking the wealth of his people and who was speaking peace to all his seed. Even in the midst of all of the trouble, all of the trial, there was peace in the soul and in the heart and in the mind. And so what I'm saying is, where is God's peace located? It's in the heart and in the mind. And so when you're struggling and when you're wondering, am I going to survive? And when you're going through the external difficulty or the trial, what is the response is the response of the heart anxiety and anxiousness and fearfulness? Or is the response of the heart one of calm and one of peace in spite of what's going on? But I want you to look back in Philippians 4 because we know what it is. It's peace. It's rest. It's quietness. We know who it's from it's, or who it's of. It's of God. We know where it's located in the heart and in the mind. But what does it do? What does it do? Verse 7 says, The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What does it do? It keeps the heart and the mind. Notice this peace keeps. The word keeps. It means a watcher in advance. It means to guard or protect 
And it carries the meaning of a watcher who is, who is sitting on a fortress. A watcher in advance. Uh, the fortress is what guards and protects. The peace of God is a watcher in advance. It is a fortress that protects and guards. Now understand this. Understand what it's saying. And let this truth sink in. Ultimately, what it's saying is that God himself takes responsibility himself to guard and to protect the heart and the mind of those who will trust in him and believe in him. It is the peace of God. It is of God. It is his. And it keeps and guards the heart and the mind. God is saying, I take responsibility to protect your heart and your mind. And so as we celebrate His goodness, as we pray to Him about everything, God begins to construct a fortress around our heart and around our mind, protecting from what is outwardly happening in life. That's what it's saying. I don't know if that resonates with you or not, but that is exciting. I don't have to work up peace or try to conjure it up or have this feeling or talk myself into it. What I need to do is take it to the Lord and know that the Lord is there who understands the problems, who understands life as I'm going through it and all the questions that I have about tomorrow and what's going to happen. And I, in the middle of that, I can say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know this. The Lord is going to take care of me. He is going to provide. He takes it on himself to protect my heart and my mind with his peace. You know that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Martin Luther wrote that song, but there's a verse. And the first verse, I think it is actually, A Mighty Fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper He, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. It's a strange way to word it. We don't talk like that anymore. But He says God is a bulwark that never fails. He is the one who helps in the middle of the flood of mortal ills, problems, prevailing in my life. He takes responsibility. We know what it is. We know it's of God. We know where it's located in the heart and in the mind. We know what it does. It keeps and guards. But how is it obtained? How is it obtained? And we've talked about several things already, but there's a few other things in the Bible that I just want to point your attention to. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How is the peace of God obtained? Well, we do need to celebrate the goodness of God, and we do need to pursue that gentle, quiet spirit with the understanding that God is near. We do need to pray about everything. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, you kind of see some of that same formula Paul talking about. He says in verse 16, he says, rejoice evermore. In verse 17, he says, pray without ceasing. 
In verse 18, he says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That sounds really familiar to Philippians 4, doesn't it? Rejoicing in the Lord, praying about everything, giving thanks. And notice what he says in verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an element to finding the peace of God in yielding to the work of sanctification in our life. The context of sanctification, verses 12 through 23 of this chapter. We won't take the time to look at it. But basically, it's the summary of Christian duty. And he gets down to the end. He says to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Yielding to the work of sanctification in our life is part of obtaining the peace of God. Sometimes the Lord uses the trial of life to bring sanctification to work sanctification in our life. And you know what? There's conflict. There's conflict with the Lord when we resist. When we resist that work of sanctification, things that we won't give up that the Lord is saying to, sometimes sometimes we can make a mess of things simply because of our own making. We can experience trial and trouble and tribulation and all because of our own poor choices. And it's a mess of our own making. And the question, let me ask you this question, are you in a storm of anxiety in your life? But here's a bigger question, or maybe a, or a related question, rather. Are you in a storm of anxiety in your life because you haven't been listening to God? If that describes you, realize that God corrects those that He loves. Confess that. Resolve to learn from those poor choices and yield to the work of God in your life. Not yielding grieves the Spirit of God, and friend, guess what else it's going to do? It's going to hinder the peace of God in your life. Now look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 20. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, in verse 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know another way to find peace, the peace of God, is to yield to the good will of God in your life. He says here, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And then he gets to verse 21. He says, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. Yielding to the good will of God in your life is something that brings the peace of God in our life. And when we yield, we find a measure of God's peace that we did not know. Because what if my plans were different? 
What if what God is saying for me to do is something that I did not think or imagine for myself? It's not something I want. It's not something I've imagined for myself, but God is saying to do it. Well, God knows what is perfect and what a perfect fit is. We don't. And we could think, oh, I, I, could, I, could never, I could never go do something like that. Like maybe, maybe God is working in someone's life to, to, a, to a ministry somewhere, to call a man to preach or to send a man who, who, who's been serving the Lord to some other place. And I would say, oh, I would never do that. I could never do that. But what if God's saying to do it? And we resist that, and we fight that, and we find that our life has got some turmoil in it, and it's not, it's not peaceful. There's something, there's something agitating. There's something that's not right. Maybe, possibly, it's because I'm not yielding to the goodwill of God in my life. Because it's not what I've imagined for myself. But in yielding, finally yielding to the Lord, we find amazing peace. Whereas when we go with what we think and we lean on our own understanding, we mess it up. It has been said that peace is the deliberate adjustment of my life to the will of God. Interesting thought. And Isaiah 26 and verse 3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. At the end of the day, you just got to keep your eyes on the Lord in order to have God's peace. That will keep him in perfect, complete peace, whose mind is stayed. That word means to prop, to support. It means to fix. It's talking about a pier or a foundation, the anchor, the root, the thing that holds it all up. That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. When God is the support and our mind is fixed on Him, His peace comes. He brings calm. I'll close with this. The peace of God really comes when we ultimately are obedient to His Word and trusting in His promises. Because fear usually grips us when we either ignore or we forget what God has already said. That's when fear begins to grip us. God has never promised us a life without storms, but He has promised to be there when we face them. Amen? One more passage of Scripture, and I'll be done. Can, can turn to Second Chronicles Chapter 20. And I want you to consider this compelling testimony of Jehoshaphat the king. In a time of great crisis and trial, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, look at verse 1. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then 
There came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea, on this side Syria, and behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before the, thy people Israel, and gave it, gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If, when evil cometh upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then wilt thou hear and help. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Then Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Beniah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came, came, okay, so the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in the midst of the congregation. And look at verse 15, and he said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Wow. What a powerful testimony. According to this account, the Moabites formed a great and powerful confederacy with the surrounding nations. They marched against Jehoshaphat. It was a military invasion of a perfect storm. The Jews maybe could handle one army, but when one army allies with another, and those combine with the third, well, now it's a great multitude in which Jehoshaphat said unto the Lord, this great company cometh against us. We're not going to survive, and we don't know what to do. Jehoshaphat had reason to be afraid. This was more than just anxiety in his life. This was a real threat. But the Bible tells us what he does. And let us who are troubled in life take note of this. The Bible says in verse 3 that he set himself to seek after the Lord. The Bible says that he proclaimed a fast 
in all of Judah. Verses 6 through 12 tell us that he cried out to God. Verse 12 tells us that he confessed his inability. We don't have the might to overcome them and we don't know what to do. But then verse 15 tells us God's response. Don't be afraid. The battle's not yours. It's mine. The story goes on to say that Jehoshaphat was so confident in the Lord after this that he went to battle and he went to battle with the singers out in front of the army. That poor choir, that's not what they signed up for. (laughs) Jehoshaphat was so confident in the Lord that he led with worship. He led with worship, fully confident that the Lord was going to take care. And what I'm saying is this. Let us learn a lesson from this king. In your troubles, lead with worship. Go first to your Father in prayer and praise for who He is. In everything, with prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Confess to Him your fears. You know what? God wants to hear it. Just go talk to Him. Just talk to Him because He's right there. Confess your fears. Set your face toward God. Cry out for His help. Admit your inability. And then once God moves you move too. Expect, expect to see the God of the ages fight for you. Amen? He's near. He's as near as your next breath. We talked about that in verse 5. Contrary winds and crashing waves are going to come in your life. Uncertainty about tomorrow can start to You belong to the Lord. He said, My peace I give unto you. My peace I live with you, leave with you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You know what? You might face the perfect storm, but Jesus offers the perfect peace. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts in your mind. God doesn't want us to live in anxiety and fear and worry. That's not where he wants us to live. Amen? Let's trust the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts and remind us where the strength is, where the source is. We want calm. We don't like to have fear or anxiety or a troubled heart. But that's our first response so often. When you've promised us perfect peace, a peace that is beyond our intellect, when we ought to be feeling threatened, when we ought to be worried, when we ought to be upset, we're not. There's just a peace of God in my heart and in my mind that calms me in spite of the outward storm. You promised that. You promised perfect peace to those whose heart and mind release to you the burdens of life. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to run to you, to experience and know what that really is and what it really means. That it's not just some 
words on a page, some abstract thought out there in space somewhere, but a reality of our heart and our mind that we know because of experience. So Lord, I pray that you'd teach us and help us, Lord, that we would seek after you. And the questions of tomorrow, I don't need to live in fear and worry of. I can leave them to you knowing that you're going to care and provide. And the battle is not mine, it's yours. That you take on yourself the responsibility for the care of my heart and my mind. So Lord, I pray that this would be encouraging, challenging to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.